John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 33. I'll be focusing in during the sermon on verses 20 to 26, but to get some of the context before and after, we'll look at 12 to 33. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Go with me again to John chapter 12. We'll be looking specifically at verses 20 to 26. The Joshua Project is a ministry that tries to keep track of the progress of mission work around the world. Now, their numbers and and even sometimes their criteria are not always perfect, but they do give us some rough estimates to work with. According to their latest numbers, there are over 7,200 people groups in the world still unreached with the gospel. A people group being a group of people united by ethnicity and language. Unreached being the number of Christians there is tiny or non-existent. These groups contain a staggering 3.4 billion people. 40% of the world's population. 
Of those 7,200 groups, almost 500 of those groups have over a million people in each of them. And most of those are found across North Africa, Middle East, and South Asia, what we call the 1040 window. 1,300 of those people groups, a total of 157 million people, still do not have the Bible that they can read in their own language. Now, those numbers are so huge, the mind goes numb, doesn't it? Sometimes the heart goes numb hearing them. How will those 3.4 billion people ever hear the gospel of salvation? How will those 150 million people ever read the Bible in their own language? Or let's bring it closer to home. We no longer live in the culturally Christian America of the 1950s. Our culture is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity. Our context slowly but surely looks more and more like the context of the early church in the book of Acts. How will the 180,000 plus people of the New River Valley hear the true gospel? How will the 38,000 students at Virginia Tech or the 7,500 at Radford Some of those students, by the way, come from those unreached people groups I just mentioned. Did you know that? And many, if not most, of all of those students consider Christianity irrelevant or a threat. How will they hear the good news that in Jesus Christ there is rescue from judgment when we answer to our Creator? Well, If you've read the Bible, you you know that Jesus gave several different variations of the answer to that question, and we want to look at one of those answers in John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12, verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. In our text, we have a group of Greeks. They're they're part of a class of people in Jewish society called God-fearers. Now, a God-fearer, they worship the one true God of Israel, but they hadn't been circumcised. They had not fully embraced or joined Judaism. So we have these God-fearers. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem the week before his death. We call that the triumphal entry. He's created quite a stir. He is the talk of the town. And these Greeks have come up to worship at the temple for the Passover, and they really, really want to meet this Jesus that everybody's talking about. But there's a problem. It seems that he's the Messiah of the Jews, and it was no secret to Greeks and Romans how most devout Jews felt about Gentiles. They despised them. Will Jesus even speak to them? So they respectfully approach one of the disciples, Philip, and the Greek literally says they kept asking him. So they're practically begging, Sir, please, sir, please, will you take us to meet this Jesus? Well, Philip's not sure what to do. 
I mean, yeah, there were times Jesus spoke to a Samaritan or to a Gentile. He even worked miracles for them. There was the Roman centurion's servant. There was the Canaanite woman's daughter. But Jesus had also made it clear, particularly in the story of the Canaanite woman, that his ministry was to Israel. (laughs) But you could never predict exactly what Jesus was going to do. So Philip goes for reinforcements. He goes and gets Andrew. Andrew, go with me to ask Jesus if he'll see these Greeks. You know, it's passages like this (laughs) where I really sympathize with the disciples. Sometimes Jesus' answers to a question could be incredibly confusing. And I don't blame them for being baffled. All right, so, so Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. Jesus, there are some Greeks here who would like to see you. What should we do with them? And Jesus doesn't say he'll talk to them. He doesn't say send them away. Instead, he launches into a veiled discussion of his death and true discipleship, and he starts talking about seeds dying. And I can see Philip and Andrew scratching their heads, thinking, where did that come from? We ask a simple question about Greeks and what to do with them, and the answer we get is about seeds dying and bearing fruit. Well, thankfully, John, many years later, is looking back at the whole scene, the whole story, and he sees the point of it all now. Go back two verses to verse 18. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign, the sign being the raising of Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The whole world. The, the Pharisees are frustrated, right? The triumphal entry. Look at all these people coming to worship this madman, this heretic. The whole world has gone after him. And the very next verse is a miniature fulfillment. The Greeks come looking for Jesus. John's also setting up a strong contrast that will prepare us for the book of Acts. The Jewish leaders are rejecting Jesus. The Gentiles come looking for Jesus. So for John's purpose in our story, whether Jesus actually talked to the Greeks or not (laughs) is not important. But he uses their coming and he uses Jesus' answer to Philip and Andrew to make his point again. And it's the same point he made in chapter 3. It's the same point he made in chapter 10. Jesus is about to die. And not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And by the Jews rejecting and killing him, Jesus will be glorified in the whole world. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' shocking path to glory. His shocking path to glory. Verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Those words, I bet, sent an electric shock of excitement through Philip and Andrew. 
Their faces are breaking out in smiles. They're probably high-fiving, right? They've just been through the thrill of the triumphal entry, and now Jesus says His hour has come to be glorified. Yes! Finally, Jesus is going to use His miraculous power. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up His kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom of peace and joy with us ruling at His side. But the smiles didn't last long. And the high-fiving stopped with the next sentence. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I can just see their smiles becoming frowns. The thrill in their heart suddenly becomes a knot in their stomach. What is this talk about dying again? That's not what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus patiently tries to explain once more His glory will not come through an earthly throne yet, but an earthly death that will produce a huge harvest of saved sinners. So let's look at this death for a great harvest. His shocking path to glory is death for a great harvest. As Jesus often did, He uses And the natural world as a picture of a spiritual reality. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What good is a single kernel of wheat? How How much bread can you make with that? What good is a single kernel of corn? How many people can be fed by that? The glory of a kernel is not to survive alone, it is to bear much fruit. But to bear that fruit, the kernel has to die. What a strange way to be glorified. Jesus does the opposite of all that the world does. He will be glorified by refusing to seek glory but dying instead. And that is Jesus' first point for His disciples. Glory in God's kingdom comes through death. That was true for Jesus. And as we're going to see in the next two verses, what's true for Jesus is true for His followers. Jesus' second point is that a huge harvest of souls for God's kingdom will only come through His death. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What a way to speak of the greatest moment in all of history. The perfect Son of God left the glory of heaven, fell to the earth, and died. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced by the sword of God's holy wrath for our transgressions. He was crushed under God's holy wrath for our iniquities. Such an infinitely glorious and powerful event. God become man to give himself for our sin. Now do you think such an incredible act 
would make the salvation of sinners more than just possible? Do you suppose the death of God incarnate would actually accomplish something? Would such an infinite sacrifice actually purchase a harvest? Jesus declared it would. Jesus' death guaranteed a harvest. He promises that here. He doesn't say, if I die, I might bear much fruit. Or, I'll make fruit possible. He doesn't say, there's a great potential in my death. No, he says, the death of this seed will bear much fruit. In Revelation 5, all of heaven proclaims this truth in a song of praise to the Lamb. With your blood you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus' death would produce a massive harvest across the whole world. But again, what's true for the Master is true for the servants. Jesus' death in Jerusalem would sow seeds of salvation across the whole world. But how would that crop of souls be harvested? Well, somebody has to die to gather the harvest. Jesus died to purchase worshipers of God from every people group. But how will the worship of Christ become a reality in every people group on the earth? For example, the Greeks here in John 12, they wanted to see Jesus. But Jesus' ministry is primarily to the Jews, and now his ministry is over. He's going to die in a few days. So how will the Greeks ever know Jesus? Somebody will have to die one day and travel to places like Athens and Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi for the Greeks to know Jesus? How will the Asians and the Arabs and the Africans and the Americans ever know Jesus? Verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says for the rest of the world to know him, his disciples have to share his commitment for the harvest and be willing to follow him to death. You see, Philip and Andrew, they, they come to Jesus and they say, these Greeks want to meet you. And then Jesus launches into this discussion about seeds dying and bearing fruit, talking about both the meaning of his death and the meaning of true discipleship. And do you see that his answer is not a change of subject? In essence, Jesus is saying, guys, I'm about to die for the salvation of these Greeks but you're going to have to die to this world if they're ever going to know me. 
Again, Revelation 5 says that Jesus' death has already purchased worshipers from every people group on the planet. And Jesus says here that through his death, the seeds of salvation would be scattered among every one of those groups. But Jesus makes it clear his disciples must die to life in this world and go after that harvest. Here's confidence, saints. Here is confidence. The certainty of the harvest is not in question. The only question is, do we want in on it? When the early Baptist missionaries reached the Karen people of Burma in the 1800s, they were shocked to hear tribal priests singing hymns to the Creator God, Yahweh. Now, there's no evidence that Karen had ever seen a Hebrew Bible. What's the Hebrew name for God? Yahweh. The Karen name for the Creator God? Yahweh. Karen priests taught their people that God created them, put them in a beautiful garden, told them not to eat a certain fruit. The devil deceived them and they were separated from Yahweh or Yahweh. They had teachings remarkably similar to the Ten Commandments. Do not use the name of Yahweh carelessly. Do not make an image of Yahweh. Honor your father and mother and your life will be blessed. The Karen and their neighboring tribe, the Lahu, had a legend of a lost book of God's laws. And they were waiting for someone to bring them that book. God's book, they called it. So when the colleagues of Adoniram Judson reached the Karen, they found ten tribes totaling three million people in an area the size of Texas just waiting for them. And thousands of people were converted so quickly they could barely keep up with them. Now, the Karen are a particularly remarkable example of Jesus' words here. That is not the norm for most mission work in the world. But Jesus did say He already has sheep scattered and seeds planted in the cities of Europe, in the rainforests of the Amazon, in the mountains of China, in the desert of Iran, in the African bush, and right here in the New River Valley and on the campuses of Tech and Radford. And all that is needed is for Christ's followers to die in some way to this world and go gather the harvest. But that is such an unpleasant word. Die. I was joking with Luke earlier. I said, you know, last week Pastor Luke called us all to run. This week, I'm calling us all to die. So I'm guessing you like Pastor Luke better. Die. Why would anybody want to do that? Verse 25. <laughs> For some of us, running is kind of like dying. But, uh, verse 25. Why would we die? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus talks like this so many times, doesn't he? 
about loving our life, hating our life. And, and we understand that those words love and hate are relative. Jesus is describing how we feel about this physical life compared to how we feel about Him. And the issue is this, do we love our earthly life more than our relationship with Christ? Or do we hate our earthly life compared to how much we value a relationship with Christ? And Jesus said the one who loves this life more than a relationship with Him will lose it. Will lose this life. Did you know that that word is also translated destroy? (laughs) The one who loves this physical earthly life will destroy it. Because by choosing earthly comfort and pleasure over Christ will destroy the very thing we value. Because apart from Him, we will never find what we're looking for. But folks, listen to Jesus' words carefully. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Did you catch the must? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Question, how do you follow a suffering Savior without suffering? And I'm not talking about cancer or losing your job. That is real suffering. And Christians can endure those things in a noble manner and bring great glory to God. But I'm talking about a deliberate choice to suffer some form of loss for the glory of Christ, for the good of His church, and for the salvation of the lost. Let me quote Charles Spurgeon here. Dear friend, remember that although no one died on the cross with Christ, yet another person did carry the cross for Christ. While the redemption price is paid by Christ alone, this world is to be redeemed by divine power manifested in the sufferings and labors of saints, as well as those of Christ. Power is needed to dash down idols to overcome the hosts of error. And where is it to be found? In the Lord of hosts, who shows His power in the sufferings of Christ and His church. The church must suffer that the gospel may be spread by her. We see in Simon's carrying the cross a picture of what the church is to do throughout all generations. Mark then, Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Remember that and expect to suffer. How often I need to be reminded that if my Christianity is one of convenience, where I follow Christ as long as it keeps me comfortable and safe and prosperous, and I avoid all sacrifice and risk and suffering, I really, really need to go read the Gospels again. Where did Jesus ever say that to be His disciple would be convenient? 
Where did he ever say we can follow him when it fits our schedule? He said to be his disciple would cost us everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor killed by Hitler, said it best in his famous quote, when Christ bids a man come and follow him, he bids him come and die. Now, I'm not saying that every Christian has to be a missionary or that every Christian has to physically die. And I would not even dare to try to define what form your suffering may take in your service to Christ. But Jesus calls us all to hate this life, to not value this life in this world, but rather invest this life in a greater payoff eternal fellowship with Him. And notice, church, what He says in verse 26, if anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. Follow you where, Jesus? Where are you going? To a cross. To die. And where I am, there my servant will be also. But how? How do we obey this call to hate our life in this world? How do we die with Christ? There are many ways. Some of us may literally have to accept physical death for the sake of Christ. All the apostles but John were killed as they went out to gather the harvest. Those five missionaries that many of us have read about, young men with families, all died trying to harvest the Alca in Ecuador. Missionaries and preachers in communist countries and Muslim countries are killed all the time gathering the harvest. So one way to hate our life is to say, my survival doesn't matter. I will go to the most dangerous places on the planet and preach Christ. Or to say with Paul, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That kind of hating your life really glorifies Jesus to a watching world. I didn't really want to take my family where there was the constant risk of malaria. Where over 40% of the population had HIV. Where there were deadly snakes that were faster than I was. I didn't really want to go down to a river full of crocodiles to draw water to bathe in or to drink. It was scary waking up in the middle of the night to a group of thieves trying to break into our house. But somebody had to do that if the lousy people were going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am not holding myself up as a hero my family will tell you there were days I whined like a baby because I missed air conditioning. <laughs> but I'm just saying I know a little bit about dying to this world. The risk is real, but it's worth it. Speaking of whining about air conditioning, that's a second way you can hate your life, just to say, my comfort doesn't matter. 
for every tribe and culture on earth to be harvested, some of us have to give up this comfortable, convenient American life. We have to say goodbye to family. We have to give up financial security, church fellowship, familiar food, the internet sometimes. (gasps) Everything comfortable, everything familiar, everything safe about life here. Again, I remember the day we put our house up for sale. (laughs) We had our dream house, right? It was an almost new home, 30 acres. I could walk out my door and hunt deer. We got a really good deal, by the way. But the Saturday morning came to, to put the house up for sale, and that was hard. But God was so kind and gentle to us that morning in Joyce's quiet time. Do you know what text she read? Whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. And we cried together and we prayed together and I walked up that driveway wanting to throw up and I put the sign by the road. And that day was easy compared to saying goodbye to our church and goodbye to our family. And again, I'm no hero. (laughs) I thought I was back then. God proved otherwise. But I do know that the pain of dying to this world is real. I can tell you the pain is worth it. For some of us, someday, it it may cost the ultimate death of our comfort. It might cost prison, the loss of our freedom. There are countries in Europe now where to openly evangelize, to say that someone's belief system is wrong, or to say what the Bible says about some sins, that's hate speech and will land you in prison. How far do you think we are from that? And at the very least, those of us who've ever tried to evangelize family or coworkers or at the abortion clinic or on campus, we know that dying to this world to gather a harvest does include the death of our pride. It's not fun to be mocked, to be thought ignorant and uneducated, to be called an intolerant, hateful bigot. It's not easy to embrace being a fool for Christ's sake. Another way our pride might die is death to recognition. Instead of doing the big glamorous thing, we do the simple quiet thing that goes unnoticed and unpraised. Not all of us are called to go to distant lands or even to the campus or the sidewalk. You know, the work of missions and local evangelism takes financial resources too. And some of us may need to adjust our attitude toward the stuff of this world. Can we live simply and give more to gospel work? And I praise God for many in this church who are already doing that and enabling us to do what we do. We do see times in the gospels, don't we, where Jesus called his disciples to die to stuff that rusts and turns to dust. And invest more in what is eternal. Making more disciples of Christ. So dying to this world can take many different forms. But again, Jesus is out there gathering his sheep. Gathering the harvest. Do we want in on that or do we want him to use somebody else? Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 14. 
May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Can we say that? I've been crucified to the world. Can I say my survival doesn't matter? My comfort doesn't matter. My freedom doesn't matter. My pride doesn't matter. More stuff doesn't matter as long as I get to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if we choose to follow Him on that path, what did He promise? As astounding as it is, we get to share in His glory. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, the path to glory in Christ's kingdom is not in church positions or in power. It's not in fame or spectacular accomplishments. The only path to glory in God's kingdom is the path Jesus walked. Death to self in the world. But if we choose that path, what is our reward? Not survival. I mean, that's silly, right? Nobody survives this life. The reward's not comfort. The reward's not recognition. Now, many of us might skip to the end of verse 26 and say, Aha, the reward is honor from the Father. And that's true. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? (laughs) And the New Testament is clear. God saves us. God enables us to do everything we do, and then God turns around and rewards us for it. What a God. But don't skip over the greatest reward in the middle of verse 26. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Be honest. Is that the reward you delight in? Just to be with Him. Just to be where He is. The greatest missionary the world has ever seen said, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That is better by far. But before the day came to depart and be with Christ, Paul said, I want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul knew before he went to be with Christ in glory, he would have to walk a road of suffering with Christ. And he gladly walked that road if he could know Christ better on that road. Do you really want to know Christ better? Deliberately risk some measure of suffering for the glory of Christ, the good of His church, and the salvation of the lost, and see if that doesn't deepen your relationship with Him. I'm pretty confident that many of you in this room have done that, and you can testify that, yes, this is true, can't you? Just one more comment on verse 26. What is Jesus' primary call on every believer's life? If anyone serves me, he must what? Follow me. Just follow me. Just be with him. 
You see, I recognize a certain danger inherent in preaching a message like this. I preach strongly on dying to the world, giving your life for the cause of missions or evangelism. And I remember when I was a young man with the best intentions, I start trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? What should I do? Should I sell my house? Should I quit my job and go to the mission field? And and there was this well-intentioned emotional reaction that sometimes runs ahead of wisdom. So, don't be like me, the younger me. Selling your possessions isn't the goal. Abandoning education or career to do missions isn't the goal. Being with Jesus is the goal. Just being with Him is the reward of obedience. It's also the path of obedience. So we don't have to stress over what to do. Just focus on walking with Him each day, making ourselves available. And as He stirs our heart and governs circumstances, we just take the next step of obedience. William Carey's called the father of Baptist missions. Some of you have probably read his biographies. In 1793, Carey and his family sailed from England, headed for India, never ever to return home. Carey's missionary partner seriously underestimated the expenses of life in India and then spent what little money they had foolishly. So the first several months in India, Carey's family was basically homeless and near starvation. After the first year, their five-year-old son died of a fever. His wife grew more and more mentally ill, heard nothing from his supporters in England for two years, eventually endured the death of two wives and his beloved co-workers. More than once, Carey's preaching was disrupted as crowds cursed him and threw rocks and sticks at him. His day usually began at 6 a.m. reading a chapter of the Hebrew Bible. How about that, Luke? (laughs) And then he would spend the whole rest of his day teaching and translating and preaching until 9 o'clock at night and collapse into bed. He labored for seven years like that through much suffering before he saw a single convert. But after 40 years in India, Carey and his co-workers had translated the Bible into 40 languages. They had started 103 schools to read, teach people to read that word, and they had planted the church in India. And in addition, Baptists in England and in America firmly committed to the work of missions. Look what Christ could do through one uneducated shoemaker who died to this life and followed Jesus to the hard place of the world. But he didn't do it alone. He had friends at home also serving, also suffering, to support him in prayer and in finances. Let me close with the words to an old hymn. It's the closing hymn of Carrie's commissioning service. The second stanza, I think, sums up well the point of my message this morning. And must I part with all I have, Jesus, my Lord, for Thee? This is my joy, since Thou hast done much more than this for me. Yes, let it go. One look from Thee will more than make amends for all the losses I sustain 
of credit, riches, friends. Let it go. One look from Him will more than repay all that we consider loss. We're going to end our worship this morning observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We observe this to commemorate Christ's death that we've been talking about. Christ's death to purchase our salvation from sin and wrath. His death to secure our place in that harvest of eternal life. In taking this, we look back to celebrate His first coming to redeem us. We also look forward to His final coming, coming when we will forever fellowship with Him. This is a celebration for all who are fully trusting in Christ for salvation. And it is only for those who are fully trusting Christ for salvation. If you are not trusting Jesus this morning for salvation, then this supper is not for you. But you know what? Christ Himself that this supper represents can be yours today. If you would see your sin before a holy God, see your need of a Savior, if you would turn from that sin and trust God's free offer of mercy through the death of His Son, you can have full forgiveness. You can have eternal joy starting today. And I pray you'll do that. For those of us who are already trusting in Christ, as we come to the table let us remember the Apostle Paul's caution not to go through this flippantly. Are we using this time to truly contemplate the meaning of His death for us? Are we resolved as our pattern of life to walk in obedient submission to the One who bought us with His blood? Do we recognize that this is a family meal? That it is taken by those who are walking in love and unity with a local church, the body of Christ. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. After that, as the music plays, please come and partake of the supper. And then when everyone's done, we will stand and sing together. Let's pray. Father, again, we rejoice in the good news that God became man, that Your Son took on our nature, that He suffered among His brethren, that He took the form of a servant and humbled Himself even to the point of the most horrifying death under Your wrath on a cross. And because of that, you have raised him from the dead and you have given him the name above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you have offered that if we would put our trust in him, we not only can share in his life, but share in his glory. God, there is no understanding the fullness of your humility or your generosity to your fallen creatures and we rejoice this morning.
And God, as we come and partake the bread and the wine, may your Spirit drive home to us what our Savior suffered on our behalf. May we be comforted, God, by the forgiveness that is ours in Him. And oh, may our hearts be stirred to live more fully and faithfully for Him. Lord, make this true. And God, may today be a sweet day for someone who is called to salvation, who embraces Christ as their Savior for the first time. Oh, do this for your Son, who is worthy of all our worship. And we pray in His name. Amen.